0: Welcome to today's edition of the John Papaloni Show. Today we have Professor Joe Mahoney. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Very kind of you. Absolute pleasure. Why don't we start off the podcast with a little uh, description of who you are, what you do, and how you got there.
1: Okay, very quickly, um, I was a historian by training, couldn't get a job, went into consulting, did that for many years as a corporate consultant and internal consultant got a bit uh, stressed with it all jumped to academia to study teach and research consulting and then became in in the UK being a professor is kind of what you get after 20 years slog Um, and so became a professor in consulting and during that process started advising boutique consultancies and some tech firms on growth and exit. And so that's where I am now. I'm kind of spending half my time at the university researching and teaching consultancy and the other half of my time consulting to the consulting industry. So I'm not someone you'd necessarily invite to a a dinner, but I do know my stuff when it comes to consulting firms.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it makes sense. I get that part. Now, in terms of uh... Okay, so you're teaching as well as you still have some consulting. I mean, you also said that your um, focus your focus is basically on growth and exit. Yeah, uh, what do you find that you spend more time on? like where where is the bulk of your clients coming from? I for exit or for growth
1: yeah okay so so it's 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 more on growth I mean the the exit typically takes a year so you've got kind of six months of the exit process, but then you've got six months before when you're prepping the firm for it um prior to that, it's all about um revenue growth, EBITDA, getting the firm into the right state but that as you know, that year before you sell, you often do things that aren't necessarily what you would do if you weren't seeking to exit. So, you know, polishing up the 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 books um you know maximizing EBITDA you know really chasing some outstanding invoices that you might have let go there's lots of that type of tidying. it's like living in a house before you sell it yeah so you know when you're gonna sell the house you make sure it's looking hundred percent and a lot of people say I wish I'd painted that room you know when when we came here instead of when we we're about to leave
0: yeah I I, I get that um... Yeah, I I get that. My question is, okay, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, you're right. Absolutely. You would polish it and sort of, again, it's like selling a house. When you're uh, selling a home, you would stage it and get it ready. You wouldn't just list it and hope for the best. Yeah. But um that makes it interesting. My, my question is, where what it comes down to is it makes me wonder is uh when people are looking for businesses, is that something they should be considering because oftentimes you hear that uh, the books are in one way. And then when you get the business, the new owner gets it and it ends up being something different. Now, is there some relation to that or is it really just come down to some people are crooks and a crook is a crook and an honest one is an honest one?
1: (laughs) That's a really good way of putting it. Um, (laughs) So everyone... touch it adjust their balance sheet and you would be expected to adjust your balance sheet balance sheet before you before you sell your firm some people adjust it a little bit too much but that's what due diligence is for so if you're buying a firm you get a set of almost forensic accountants to go through the books match them to statements and do all of that due diligence stuff so on the financial side i find that generally buyers do a decent job on on that what a lot of buyers miss is the rest of the value in the firm so very often once the it depends on the size of the deal but once the finances have been looked at people are generally happy but what they haven't looked at you know is the motivation of the senior team or they get surprised that some of the key people are le- leaving or there's a client relationship that actually once you dig into that client's not going to be with that firm in a couple of years so there's there's hundreds of other aspects of professional service firms that buyers should be looking at that I don't think they always spend enough time looking at.
0: Which makes sense. Now, like, Why do you think that happens, right? Where people, uh, you buy businesses and you like, look, if you have 100 clients and I'm buying your business with 100 clients, I mean, it's natural to expect a few people to leave because some people mm. are, will literally are not coming for your business. They're literally coming for you. Yep. And if you're not there, clearly they're going to just look at other options. Yeah. But so you expect when you buy a business that the majority is going to stay and even the staff you would assume that they're not planning to exit with the business yep but there's always changeover. so yep. what do you think attributes to that
1: yeah so i think i think often buyers are led by the finances because very often they're bankers by background or their accountants by background um th- this is the, these are the brokers so i'm talking about the the, the banking yes. of the transaction um and Sometimes, you know, there's all these psychological flaws that we have as human beings that mean that we are more inclined to do a deal if we've already invested in it. If we like the people, if they come across as trustworthy Um, and without, you know, there's some really obvious stuff that often people don't look at if the finances look good enough. So if you've got 30 percent EBITDA and you've got 30 percent growth. You know, you're going to get a bidding war. And in that hurry to bid on you, some things are going to get overlooked. And sometimes that's fine because the company's generating tons of cash. So if people leave or a few clients leave, it doesn't matter. Um, but you really need to manage that risk. And in a, if you're doing a large purchase, that risk is minimized. Because if, you know, if 10 people leave or well, so what? You've got 1,000 people in the firm. But if you're buying a firm with 50 people in it, those risks become so much more magnified because within that 50 there might be two or three people who are absolutely crucial to the future of that company and once they go you're in trouble
0: yeah absolutely now how would a uh, new owner you know protect themselves from that
1: okay so you do you, i mean you do the earnout stuff and you ensure that the key people have equity but very often they confuse the key people with the senior people and as we all know sometimes senior people aren't all that hot um, uh, and and then you know depending what you're buying the firm for you take very seriously the cultural fit between the firm that you're buying and your own firm because if you've and i've seen this i've been involved in this where you have you know you have a team you're buying a firm full of very experienced um, uh challenger lone wolf style consultants have been there and done that and you integrate them into you know an it process firm and they all leave within two years and all the value walks out the door um, and that's lack of attention to the soft stuff you know egos culture values all, all of that stuff that's really hard to measure
0: yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously that's something important. Okay, equity in the business would actually help cuz nobody wants to leave a business that they're earning more on based on performance of the business. Cool. Um especially if they're partners, but uh, again, larger establishments wouldn't have that you know that well again, you just said larger establishments wouldn't have the problem of people leaving either. Um <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I, I just find this part fascinating and interesting because uh, again, you're buying something with hopes of something going one way. And then sometimes a lot of times you see this massive exit and you're going, okay, now what? Yeah. My theory is always, see, you expose the vulnerability of, of small business. And that's one thing that always concerns me. Now, one way I look at it, I always believe there should be more than one person that knows each role in each company. So if somebody takes an exit, you have time to replace them.
1: Yep, I like that's that. That's my theory. Yeah. 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 And it, in a small firm, uh, that's sometimes a challenge because often they don't have enough people to cover the roles they need, let alone everybody else's role. And and especially in that last year, if you were trying to maximize EBITDA, by not hiring then you expose yourself to risk and sometimes if a buyer can identify that risk your value drops to them um even though your ebitda might be you know a point or two higher
0: yeah that's true now what's the attraction to purchasing small businesses okay right like go on go on sorry yeah, yeah i was gonna say because i can see the attraction to a large business right like if you have a fortune 500 you see those massive exits those massive amounts of money i get those Right, and that one makes sense. But usually, a small business, and maybe it's what I comprehend is a small business, maybe the issue. Sure. And I look at a small business as to me, a small business is a business that's doing like two hundred thousand to, will say, five or ten million dollars a year.
1: Okay. Okay. I so I generally would avoid buying a business that small. So I I generally advise founders not to sell until they reach the ten million mark. And there's there's a few well, there's it. a few reasons for that one i mean the most important one is that you get a lot of buyers will not be looking at anyone below 10 million and don't get me wrong there's thousands of smaller firms that are sold you know two three million you know even five hundred thousand um, will, will be sold but very often they're buying the people um so you know you might get an ai startup you've got some bright people you've got fast growth over a couple of years PwC really needs people in this space so they buy you, but in effect they're buying the people because they don't have the assets, they don't have the brand, they don't have a track record. Um, once you get to, say, 30 to 50 people, then you have to have assets in the firm, otherwise it falls apart. So you can't have a load of individuals running around doing what they want, although that does happen sometimes. Hmm. So so I generally speaking, there's an inflection point at around $10 million, $10 million pounds where you're a lot more attractive, your multiple that you're gonna get of EBITDA jumps up, um, and also the risk to the buyer diminishes. So don't get me wrong, there's plenty of firms out there that will simply buy your team, but the multiple that you'll be getting on profit is, is relatively low.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, which brings the interesting point. How did you learn all this, right? I mean, I'm sure you didn't just wake up one day and say (laughs) EBITDA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: sure. Okay. So, um, you know, as a corporate consultant, I didn't see much of this. Um, And then when I came to academia, it was a bit like early retirement, to be honest. So I started my own business that I grew and then sold. It was a tech business. Um, And so I got, you know, I didn't didn't sell it for a fortune, but I got to experience, you know, managing a firm, what the key levers were and how value could be driven in a small firm. And then what happened in academia is a lot of my friends that I left in consultancy, they went up through the ranks, they bumped up against partner, they didn't make it. So they left and started their own firms and then as the only professor of you, of consulting, um, they came to me for advice, and I thought, "Oh, there's not much research here." So, you know, the first thing I I, I gave general advice on running businesses, but the first thing I did, I went and interviewed a hundred founders who have grown and sold their own firms. And I wrote a book off the back of that. So that gave me a bit of confidence. Then over the last 15 years, I've dealt with over 200 boutiques. And I guess over time, that's, that's given me a bit more knowledge. I've practiced what I preach. I capture and, you know, systematize my knowledge um, in templates and forms and questionnaires and things. and, and part of the reason I still do this is because there's so much bad advice out there. I mean, I'm sure you as a business owner every day get something on LinkedIn from a suspiciously young man dressed in a cheap suit promising to scale your business to 10 figures or less. Um, and it's a load of bullshit when oh, it comes yeah. to professional service firms. So, yeah, I'm I i, I I'm a big fan of evidence-based
0: advice. Absolutely tons of internet gurus out there now i i get four or five a day between (laughs) linkedin and instagram yeah yeah everyone's gonna uh you know skyrocket my sales and 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 it's just ridiculous and and the people that are doing this they're not even doing the research no like they'll (laughs) offer to do a service that my business provides i'm like did you even look at what i do yeah (laughs)
1: <laughs> and A lot of this advice has been taken from the tech, so this whole idea of scaling, don't get me wrong, there is, a, there is a point where you can scale a professional services firm, but it's not like scaling a tech business, you don't just create a marketing funnel and turn the handle, it's hard work, you build relationships, you hire people, you train people, and, and professional service firms are very different to tech firms for that reason.
0: Yeah, and exactly, and there's no way that uh, like people think it's like I'm gonna go to sleep. I hired somebody; he's gonna scale my business. I'm gonna to go to sleep. I'm gonna wake up, and I'm gonna triple my sales. Yeah, it does not work that way. Like I mean, every every business has certain increments. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible for things to blow up like that, but very few people do. People will see somebody like Mark Zuckerberg and say, "Wow, look at the billions. Hmm. There's one of them. There's one Elon Musk. There's probably, on two hands, the amount of people out there in the world that have businesses like that, and there's 7 billion people in the world. That means the majority of people fail in that aspect. Mm. Yeah. Right? So it's kind of ridiculous how people, uh, you know, see one person they idolize and think they're going to duplicate. Yeah. You know, it's...
1: And and also, it it kind of ignores the role of luck. I mean, we all like to think that if we follow this 10-step plan, we're going to become multimillionaires, And unfortunately there's just i mean my research shows you know it's, there's a good 20 30 of luck in getting to that 5 10 million stage
0: yeah absolutely um i'm gonna you know hang <laughs> on i'm gonna open this right up i have a personal belief that there's no such thing as luck oh go on and what i mean by that is not that somebody can't have a lucky turn yep. but i believe luck comes from the uh consistent actions you take each day like i believe you create your luck uh, where the luck comes in is that you did all the right things, and it just happened to get lucky that something worked out at that moment. I don't believe luck happens as in you wake up and wow, this landed on my plate. How did this happen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: there is. I mean, there's something to there. There is something over time with consistency, isn't there? If you're the person who gets unlucky, you pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, you get unlucky. You pick yourself up, you dust yourself off, then you get lucky, and then you take that chance. You're different to all the people that didn't dust themselves off and didn't take that chance. So in that respect, I definitely agree with you.
0: Yeah, and, and that's just a perspective. And hey, you know what? I challenge anyone who disagrees with, with me to uh, show me their proof, show me what happened to them, right? <laughs> I thought
1: you were going to say to a boxing match then, and I, <laughs> I
0: don't think many yeah, people I, I'm a- get
1: in the ring with you.
0: Well, I'll take that as a compliment, Yay. but I'm not challenging anyone on it.
1: <laughs> you get it. I don't want to fight about this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've gotten to an age where, hey, you know what? 15 years ago, somebody wanted a challenge. No problem. Yeah, yeah. I'm there. Wherever you want to go. Today, I'm like, mm, I'm too old for I that. I feel you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. My back's in too much danger. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, boy. But I want to unpack another thing that you said, because you brought up uh, systems a lot. Mm. And I'm a firm believer in systems. But I want you to get into your perspective on how important are systems and how early in the business should a person develop a system? Because many people uh, have an idea they worry about their brand name or their logo and their uh, name and they call that their brand when the reality is their brand is really a fancy word for reputation, which your brand is what your customers think of you when you're not there. But then they end up going on the seat of the pants. They don't have any systems. Things are chaos and all over the place. Then they, uh, you know what I mean? Like, so there's no real form or system. It's usually not to much, much later do those systems come in. Yep. Yeah. But I believe that they should have focused on creating their system from the get-go. So what are your perspectives on systems and how early should people start?
1: I I agree completely. Um, uh, I don't necessarily think systems initially in terms of the product and services, because I think those change a lot as you grow so i kind of separate consultancies into the grow phase when you're really just trying to work out what the hell you can do that brings in money consistently in a growing market and you you do it really well and you're relatively unique you don't have to be very unique. and then the scale phase where you know what you do really well and then you build out services logically from that into different markets or whatever and in in that early phase i think a lot of a lot of firms can get to you know 20 30 people and they still don't know what they really do um so i see a lot of firms and i say well before you grow you've got to get smaller so you've got to go back to the beginning or not back to the beginning but you've got to focus down on something that you really want to get well known for because at the moment you're scrabbling around doing anything that comes through the door and you can make good money like that but unless you can pause focus and be known for something you're not going to scale so in terms of systems i'm a i'm a, especially as it's so cheap to do it now you know there's there's psas where you can get you know sorry professional service automation software you know ten dollars per seat and um, you can get a crm you know fifteen dollars a month um you can you can buy you, know, you can outsource your marketing really well for like you know a hundred dollars a month so all of this stuff there's almost no excuse for that certainly with the back end systematizing all of that as soon as you start and i see a big issue with firms that haven't done that and have said oh you know next next year we'll do you know we'll, we'll we'll get our systems in place and then they get to 30 people and it's a mess and you've got to bring in a big transformation program in order to change the behavior of everyone running off their own spreadsheets so i agree with you completely i think the most successful firms i see are those that started off professionally with a view to we are going to grow and we need to be thinking about what we're like when we're 20 people when we're only 10 people and we need to be thinking about 100 people when we're only 50 people and they build the systems for that
0: love that i love that so my takeaway on that is sometimes you may be a 50 person organization we got to pretend you're a hundred person organization and prepare for that so you always gotta be forward thinking yeah, definitely. versus present. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Love that. All right. So with that being said, now there's um the world I grew up in and the world of today are not really the same world. And it's kind of interesting because uh, like prime example, we're gonna use uh attire, right? Like I everyone talks about authenticity, right? Like, but what does that mean? You know, like, and attire has changed. Like, once upon a time, you dare not go to a meeting without being in a full mm. three-piece suit. Yeah. And today, so, especially some of the kids today, you wouldn't catch them dead in a three-piece suit. No. Oh. <laughs> right? Um, but is there still some validity in... Uh, a, a, you know, in uh, terms of presentation, that way, or is, or is things become so modernized that it doesn't matter anymore? What's your perspective on this?
1: Okay, so I, I, I guarantee that McKinsey are still suited and booted, in probably the same way that they've been suited and booted for the last, for the last hundred years. Um, but I, I believe there's a lot of value in your presentation, matching your brand and what you do. So, you know, if you're dealing with big banks, you're going to wear suits because they're all wearing suits. If you're dealing with startups in San Francisco, you know, flip flop shorts and t-shirts will do it. Um, and I think that's the same with, with the firm as well. I think when people buy McKinsey, they want the 200 page slide deck. Um, and they want to see the partner turning up in a Rolls Royce or a limo or whatever. Um, whereas, you know, if, if you, if you're really looking for real innovation, you're probably not going to go to the big firms. You're probably going to go to a nice boutique there where the people are more informal, perhaps.
0: Okay. So yeah, it really matters of who's your target and, uh, you know, who you, uh, yeah. So who, who, who are you uh, meeting with and who are you serving? Mm. It's really got what it comes down to.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that point about authenticity is, I mean, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it, it, the consulting business, the professional services business at the end of the day is a relationship business and people build relationships with people like them. And so to some extent you want to be authentic and you want that coming across in your brand and all the rest of it. But at the same time, you, you want to do business with people that are like you. Uh, yeah. And the good thing about boutiques is that the market is so big. They can usually, I I think there's a big danger of boutiques being too vanilla. And I think you're in a nice position as a boutique owner or a boutique leader where you can afford to be authentic and okay, you might piss off 80% of the market with your flip flops and t-shirts and beer in the fridge and the office. But that 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 other twenty percent are going to love you, and you don't need a hundred percent. Twenty percent of the big is, of a big market is fine.
0: Yeah, that's true too. Now, I also believe there's limits. Like, uh, you're not going to show up to work in jogging pants and t-shirts, and you know what I mean. Like, there is a limit to a point where it's too far, <laughs> and, right? Unless, I mean, like, unless you're unless
1: you're um in AI cyber um. So, I mean, some of the IT people you see who are, you know, they're, they're left in the cellar for good reasons because their brains <laughs> are so big, but you wouldn't put them in front of a client.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm very unique that way, but, uh, like where I stand is, uh, what you see is what you get, sure. right? I'm, I grew up and I was that guy in that suit and actually, believe it or not, once upon a time, I used to friggin' love it. It wasn't even one of those things where I wore That's a suit because it was proper attire. Yeah. I used to actually love it. Mm. And, um, Somewhere along the line, it changed. And today I got a little bit of a gut and that really changed now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I can't get into my suits anymore, literally. I mean, I'm I'm (laughs) dreading the day when a client's, you know, I've got a banking client and I have to squeeze into it with the top button undone under the belt.
0: (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. But uh, see, now I've just decided, I'm in a stage in my life where um, I decided I am who I am. And if I get that 20% of the market, I'm okay with that.
1: Yeah. Well, there's, um, an, mean, there is, there's an age function, isn't there? I mean, you, you, when when you're young, you have imposter syndrome. You're a bit scared that people are going to find you out, and and dressing up is part of that identity. Of well, let's protect, let's dress up and play play consultant. Yeah, yeah. By the time you get to, I don't know what age you are. I'm fifty this year, and I kind of. I, I, I know my stuff, and I don't feel like I'm pretending
0: anymore. 100%. And also, it comes down to, at a certain point, I mean, I'm 47. Um, holy crap, even just hearing that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, <laughs> um, But you get to a certain point, and it comes down to investments too, right? I'm, I'm in a position in life that whether you buy from me or not, my life won't change. I don't give a crap. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. I'm there to serve you. It's not that I don't want the business. Yeah, don't just sure. understand what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is I'm not going to not eat because you decided the guy with the suit was a better choice for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right By all means, right? But uh, I am who I am, and I'm, I'm presenting with the knowledge, as you would say. I'm presenting with the experience. Yes. I'm presenting with the outcome. Um, my team behind me will be, the, well, not behind me today, but sure. <laughs> in general, you get the metaphor. <laughs> I love it if you
1: open the windows and all these guys and girls <laughs> looking at you.
0: But yeah, so, you know, I mean, with that being said, right, like, so I have the manpower and I have the ability to be able to deliver what I say, not just say it. Sure, yes. So, and I believe in that authentic self, be who you are and you just got to accept the consequences of whatever it is that is.
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a nice philosophy. It's a much less stressful philosophy as well, isn't
0: it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know what? We live, our lives are very short. It seems like a long time when you're younger. Yeah. And it seems like, you know, 50s, you know, a thousand years away. Um, When I met my brother-in-law, he was on his 20th birthday. I think it was like five or six or something stupid like that. I saw the candle. I looked at him and my first comment was, you're old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to be that old again. (laughs)
0: yeah exactly but the point is it's perspective right at that age everything seems so far away but then when you get to my age you all of a sudden realize how fast that went yeah and then you start realizing your own mortality and you start saying how much of the stuff that i worried about and stressed out about before is really that important right in the light of things you know what you got one life and i'm not saying this yolo thing where people go out get themselves in massive debts where they're missing payments i'm talking about having calculated intentional life mm. you're planning your life and you and you're following your morals your values and what's important to you yep. and less about the materialistic stuff yeah i,
1: I noticed notice this a lot in founders i guess between you know 40 40 late 40s and um and late 50s is some of them are just like i'm, I'm knackered i'm I'm battered i can't do this anymore i you know i can see the end Others are thinking, well, let's keep going. But what happens when I hit, you know, if I get ill or whatever? So all of a sudden exit becomes more important. And I always find it quite sad when I'll be approached by a firm and the founders have got, you know, they've got maybe 20, 30 people and they're thinking, ah, oh, Joe, now's the time to exit. You know, I, I, I'm coming to the end. I want to reap the rewards. And I look at the firm and I think, actually, it's making money, but it's not sellable. You you have no assets. It's too dependent on you. You're micromanaging everything, and no buyer going to be interested. So, you know, sometimes I have to go back to them and say, "Well, if you if you want to work on this for another three years, we can sell this, but in the next twelve months, no chance at all." And that's sad to say that.
0: Absolutely. Now you brought up another point in my head, which is that I believe the fundamental problem we have as humans. Is we don't think big enough. We think small, Mm. right? We think you know, I need like you know, if I'm making a thousand, I need to make twelve hundred. If I make twelve hundred, I need to make fourteen hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an example, right? And reality is that. It's not enough of a difference or a gap to make that much of a change in your life. And often inflation will catch up to whatever that increase is. Mm -hmm. And I've learned something and I'm going to use real estate as an example because clearly I got a big background in that. The difference in acquiring a single family home or a duplex and the difference between acquiring a 24 unit building is very minor. The numbers are different, Mm. but it is actually easier to acquire that 24 unit building than it is to acquire that single family home. Okay. Okay. And I'm not saying right off the bat, I mean, anybody listening to this and turn around saying, I'm not going to buy my house. I'm going to buy a 24 unit apartment <laughs> building. Yeah. No, because what I mean is the financing is different mm. and in the way that that 24 unit building is considered a commercial purchase, that commercial purchase, the financing is based on the performance of the building Yeah, and where the single family home is, is uh, based on your salary and based on your performance. And that's where the difference is. Now the trend, so what I'm saying is that when you go scale big, there's bigger numbers, but there's a bigger opportunity and it's easier to just keep growing big. Yeah. When you try to go small, you're always at the small and you're always at the small hurdles and it's almost something like you never get over or very, you know, a few people do where to translate that to the business is that to go from 20 employees to 22, yeah. it's not really that hard, yeah. but the reward isn't that great. Yeah. But if you build a business all of a sudden where you need a thousand people, we're talking different problems here. Yes. You know what I mean, like, and 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 it's easier to exit, easier to scale when you have more people. And I find it goes back to what you said, micromanaging. When you micromanage, you put that whole business on you. Yeah, that's not sellable, as you said, because once you leave, the business is dead. Yeah, but if you translate that and you try to go scale bigger and you try to invest, and got to remember, a business is an investment. You have to invest in that business and look to scale. I believe you should try to. 10 times everything you're doing. Uh, My theory isn't, yeah, everybody says go big or go home. And my theory is, why would you want to go home? (laughs) Right, go big or go bigger.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with you unless we're at the gym. And when people say go big or go home, I always feel like going home. Um, But yes, uh, you're you're completely right. I I often find it's a function of um, class or wealth. Um, I find that founders that have gone to, you know, public schools have come from a lot of money. Uh, I was talking to one this morning, a great, great guy. And he, you know, he's only got two people working for his firm. he, He was very serious. He said, Joe, I need to turn this firm into 100 million. And I didn't laugh because you know he was serious i think he had the capability he certainly had the backers he'd got a nice vision and i'd rather see that than see someone saying oh you know it would be great if i could turn this two million into two and a half million or three million um and in in some ways it's almost as much work to turn something into as you say you know a a, a five million business as it is to a 50 million business you're just thinking about it differently
0: Yes, yes, that's exactly where I was going with it, right? Like I had the other day a, a friend, we were talking about uh, some of my next moves for my media business, and um, he just had a really small thinking, right? And I remember he goes, oh, well, you do this, and it's 500 bucks and all that. And I just turned to him, and I'm saying, you're thinking too small, and he just looked at me blankly, didn't know what I was talking about. And I'm, and then the thing that gave him that whoa factor, I said, if we're going to do a business that's going to make less than a million dollars a year, it's not worth doing. I might as well just get a job. Mm-hmm. And you just could not believe that, right? Like it was like foreign to him, and, and, and that's small thinking, right? And I'm not saying I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and I'm going to turn a business that does 150 grand a year into a million in, in three months yeah, definitely. Uh, with no yeah. effort. Yeah. I'm not saying that. But the point is you have to have an objective and you have to have a roadmap to get there. You know what I mean? Like, and if you're not working on that and you're working on it goes back to what we said, micromanaging, mm gonna micromanage yourself into another job yeah you're not really gonna get yourself you have to learn to let go delegate and build the right team you need a players yeah and if you have a team where you don't have a players those b and c players are going to drag down your a players because yeah. they're gonna have that negative attitude so yeah. you need all a players on your team if you have a b player I, 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 we'll go back to your uh your uh, tech guy that you said you leave him in the cellar You don't get them interacting with each other with that attitude there's people that are meant to be in the background and never in the forefront leave those people in the background yeah that's where they're supposed to be and if there's someone bringing anybody down they have a negative attitude that you got to get rid of it i believe in hire slowly fire quickly Mm,
1: yeah agreed yeah i I think there's i think there's something here around investment as well i think you know a, a lot of boutique owners quite rightly they're perhaps risk averse and perhaps they've been burnt in the past and they're very proud of saying, oh, I've got no debt at all. Um, whereas my, my view is often if you've got a secret source and you can buy three other companies to which you can sell that secret source, you're making money. If you've got a company that is in a position to scale, but you just don't have millions to pump into hiring and all the rest of it, if pipeline is not a problem for you, go to private equity um, You know, or go to whoever. Um, and so I think I think getting ambitious about your investment decisions is a good thing to do if you have an asset that is working.
0: A hundred percent. And I love that what you said about debt. Right now, if you're gonna go buy, get into debt to buy, to you know, for consumerism, you're gonna buy more cameras, more computers, and I don't mean computers for work. I mean just the fancy dancy stuff. You're gonna buy fancy cars. Yeah, yeah. Don't go in debt. Yeah. But if you have some a formula that's working, and and you have that secret sauce. Mm. And the, your problem is that you can't get more out of the jug. Yeah. Yeah. Go out and get that debt and buy a bigger jug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a squeezy bottle. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So, and that's the thing, right? So debt is not a problem if you're using it for the right thing. Yeah. The problem is most people use it for consumerism. Yeah. So that's why they take pride. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have any debt.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, are you where you want to be? And if the answer is no then that's not a pat on the back. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's, you know, it, and this is why some scale, some some growth is so slow. You know, I, I'll come, I was talking to someone the other day and they're very proud of the fact they'd never taken on debt, but it had taken them 20 years to get to 30 people. And I was kind of thinking, well, you know, if you'd invested in, you know, in marketing or you'd invested in people, you could be at 100, 200 people now. Um, <laughs> yeah and it's it, it's uh it's a funny flip because you know we're always told debt is a bad thing on a personal level um and you know the countries are washing debt but you know there's no point thinking about your business in terms of growth if you're not gonna take a chance on it then why should a buyer take a chance on it
0: absolutely if you don't believe in it why would anyone else yeah definitely so absolutely now going forward we're what is your vision going forward where do you see yourself going over the next few years
1: oh man okay so <laughs> so this is this is funny given our last conversation but i i i actively dislike managing people um and and have purposefully i'm i'm quite an introvert believe it or not um although actually yeah um yeah so i <laughs> i don't want to employ anyone um ag- ever again uh so <laughs> i'm i'm now so don't get me wrong, I've I've got assets and I'm building them. So I've got various, um, you know, say when I take on a new client, I've got a 300-question um, questionnaire that I give them and then I provide benchmarks and I do a SWOT analysis and then I come up with recommendations for investment for them. Um, I intend to get that into some type of SaaS. Um, I've got a boutique leaders club. Um, we get together every month. We have a chat about whatever's keeping us awake at night. I intend to systematize that and have a sort of um, subscription service off that, but I want to do this without employing anyone. So I will outsource things to Fiverr and Upwork, I've got a great virtual assistant, I've got people who work on individual things, but that employment relationship, so I don't want to run a, a consultancy myself. Um, so. And also, I've got to stop getting distracted by the shiny thing. I mean, AI is consuming my mind at the moment it's <laughs> the next book, um, AI in consultancy firms. Um, but again, it's, it's a matter of what we were talking about. Um, keeping focused.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, again, we're in a different era. Uh, I believe that our future is going to be, everybody's going to be their own employer and how you get employees is going to be that outsourcing. It doesn't mean outsourcing to the other side of the world Mm, as, mm, you know, naturally the way people think, or you go get somewhere with low wages. No, no. I think this COVID has changed things very much. And what I mean by change it is I don't think it made things different. I think it just brought the future quicker and, I think this, you know, people are getting accustomed to working from home. Now when they're buying homes, it's uh, having that home office space is becoming important for very uh, for many many people. Yep. And I think what's going to happen now is that a lot of stuff is people are going to be that independent contractor and guys such as yourself or myself. What'll happen is we won't have physical employees that are getting paid and getting those uh, deductions. What'll happen is everybody works at their own location and they're going to invoice you the way suppliers used to invoice you. And I think that's where our future is going to lead towards where you're going to have that independent contractor. They may have one or two year contracts. They'll work from home. They get their pay. They do their own deductions. They do their own thing. And then that's just going to be the way it is. Everything will be outsourced. There's going to be, you know, AI is going to take a lot of jobs, but it won't take all jobs. It's going to create different jobs or with the kind of thing I'm talking about is going to become more reality. And that's my belief. And you know what the future will tell us whether I'm right or not.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we, I mean, we're definitely moving in that direction and certainly in the consulting space. Um, the number of platforms that have come out that are there to, you know, integrate and um, put together contractors is is huge. So I definitely think we're moving in that direction. I think there's both a, um, a demand for it and almost, there's a supply request for it in terms of people working remotely. Um, however, I do think with bigger projects, I think, say, with IBM, you're always going to have this need for, you know, program level big projects. Where if you got in a thousand consultants, one of one of the jobs I had was starting up a company called Three, which is a big mobile phone company now. And we had, you know, 300 consultants working uh, at any one time in the firm, setting it up. But to do that, you needed everyone on board with the same methods, culture, communication. So I think there's I think we're definitely going to see many more contractors in professional services. Um But I don't think the big firms are going to be disappearing anytime soon, I guess.
0: No, no, definitely not. It goes back. My thought is I don't think they're going to disappear. I just think the way we're going to do business is going to change.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially with AI. I mean, the the shape of firms is changing. I mean, already, you know, you can see at the bottom of that big pyramid you get with consulting firms and any professional service firms that bottom is no longer as big as it used to be. Uh, You know, I was in a firm just a couple of days ago that is more of a a rectangle shape, and you wouldn't have had that, you know, 10, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, well, look, 20 years ago, my uh, statement of I got a 30,000-square-foot office with 1,500 employees in, and that was my bragging point. Yeah. Today, the bragging point is going to be I have 1,500 workers and I have an 800-square-foot office.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Different, you know, the same result, yeah, yeah. different. Uh...
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yes. And, and people like it. I mean, uh, one of the companies I was in was, you know, in London, no one can afford to live in London anymore, but th- none of their employees did live in London. The the company's based there, but all of the employee employees are spread all over Europe.
0: Absolutely. Awesome. All right. So in light of time, I'm going to get down to a couple more questions oh, before sure. I go into what I call a lightning round. Oh, okay. So, awesome. So next question is, how do you know? You've had a successful day. Me personally? Yep. What would yeah, what would you personally consider a successful day?
1: Oh, I've I've learned something and I have been a little bit stressed.
0: <laughs> awesome. Last but not least, anyone looking out to uh, reach you or find you, where would they go?
1: Um if you type in Joe Omani or look up Professor Joe Omani, um you'll find me. I'm I've got a website which is joeomani.com. And I'm, I do a lot on LinkedIn. I put a load of stuff out there. So you should be able to find me there as well.
0: Fantastic. All right, let's get into the lightning round with question number one, which is going to be, what is your favorite food and why?
1: I love um, Carolyn Indian cuisine. Uh, it's it's, it's coconutty, it's spicy, it's got fish in it, and um, I can cook it without killing anyone. So that's a, that's a bonus. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's awesome, especially the cook it without killing people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Question number 2 is going to be what is your favorite travel spot and why?
1: Oh man, I mean, I'm I'm I don't like roughing it. I love Vienna. Vienna is a wonderful civilized city with wonderful art and um yeah, I it, it, it's just Civilized. Um, My wife is opposite to me. She likes roughing it in, you know, in a camper van in the middle of a hurricane or something. But I'm, I'm too old for that. I need my creature comforts.
0: I hear you there. Awesome. Favorite podcast or book?
1: Oh, my favorite book. Uh, So I think it's, it's by one of your fellow countrymen, a guy called Greg Alexander. He's written an excellent book called The Boutique. Um, which, which I mean, I'm talking consulting books here. It's all I, it's all I read. I'm really boring. Um, there's the classic by David Meister managing professional, the professional service firm. Um, and there's a wonderful book, book called getting naked by Patrick Lencioni. Who's another, uh, us guy that really tells a story about what good consulting is. So I'm afraid there's nothing, there's nothing historical or fictional on my list.
0: Oh, no worries. Now. You brought up a good point here of observation, right? A lot of times people uh, are out there and, you know, they're unhappy with their jobs and they're like, I just want to follow my passion and, you know what I mean? And I'll, a lot of times, I, and, and the reason I'm mocking it isn't because they want to do something they love. It's most people that are speaking that way tend to not really do anything about what they're saying or they tend to, you know, chase false hope. Yeah. Now, where I'm going with it is that there's opportunity to be in an industry that you do love. Like, and, and what I'm saying is your example is showing that. Like, mm. you are where you are today, but you weren't there from the beginning. Yeah. You, you know, you worked your way into it. Yep. And But the point is you're in love with the industry and your your uh, books, there, that what you chose and everything yeah, yeah, you just said yeah. there, just showcase that. So the point is it's possible to go out there, chase an industry that you love, chase a dream, but still realize that you gotta work from the bottom to get to the top. Yeah. So yeah. the idea is that take action to get in something you love. Yep. Yeah. But realize you got to start from the bottom and build and don't give up. Yeah. Versus just saying, I'm not getting my passion and wanting to go home and curl up on the couch.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and two things I would add to that. Number one, ask the bloody buyers. So it's all very well, you know, following your passion, but if no one's buying it or if there's a million people selling it and only 10 buyers, you know, niche down or get out of it. Um, and the other thing is keep, keep your eyes open for value shifts. So, you know, even as someone who advises consultancies, I've shifted two or three times, you know, typically closer to the, you know, the exit stuff. And and every time you shift, you get a boost in your day rate, or you get a boost in subscription revenue, or you get a, you get a better reputation or whatever, um, and you know constantly thinking every two or three years thinking am i still in the most profitable segment of what i'm doing or should i specialize more or pick up something else um or you know get some different buyers who will pay more
0: absolutely absolutely all right last question but not least is if you were given unlimited amount of money yeah and 40 hours to spend it oh wow what you spend you get to keep yeah what you don't spend gets taken away what would you do? How much? Forty million. As much as you want. It could be a trillion. It doesn't matter. Like someone here has got unlimited amount of money. They got the country's money and saying whatever you want to buy in the next forty eight hours, I will pay for it. What you don't buy, I'm going to take back. What you do spend, you can have.
1: Shit, the bed. That's a that's a question and a half, man. Okay, so um, oh, let me think. Uh, my my initial reaction is to buy. Um, buy up all the empty property in the UK and especially London, and lease and and solve the homelessness issue overnight. Um, but uh, I, I've also got. Although I, I mentioned I did history for my first degree, and I'm a big lover of um, of Greek statues, um, ancient ancient Athenian Greek statues to be precise. And I my house wouldn't suit them, but I could do with a couple of those in the front room. So. <laughs> So maybe those, maybe a few first editions. I love art despite, you know, what's on my wall. Um, so maybe a bit of art as well. But my wife always says I'm impossible to buy for because I, I don't, you know, my car's rubbish. I don't have an expensive car. <laughs> um, so so that type of material stuff I'm kind of fine with.
0: You know, we're, we're kind of similar that way. My um, It's one of those things that I invest in my business doesn't matter what the amount is. It doesn't bother me. Mm. Invest in my home. Doesn't really matter what it bothers me. Invest in an investment. Doesn't matter what the amount is. doesn't bother me. Every time I have to buy a friggin' car, it pisses me off. I yeah, friggin' yeah, hate spending money <laughs> on cars. Yeah. I can't stand them. It's one of those ones that I, I'm not stupid and realize that I can't exactly do my job without a car. Yep. But it's one of those things. I hate them. I hate fixing them. I hate driving them. I, I hate I hate paying for them. I,
1: I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, I'm not being funny, but so around here... You know, don't get me wrong. People around here—I I live in Cardiff. Um, they're, they're relatively wealthy, but some of the cars you see on the streets, you think that cost as much as your house did, um, and yeah. being paid for through debt. Um, and you look, and very often in poorer parts of the city, you look around and the the house is worth two hundred thousand dollars, and the the car is worth a hundred thousand dollars, and all this is about is ego and pride. And, you know, yeah. if we managed to swallow that and not be obsessed with what other people think about us, we'd be much happier and we'd save ourselves a lot of money.
0: I agree with you, right? And again, what ends up happening is when people overspend, all of a sudden, look, cars are depreciating asset to start yeah, off with. Definitely. And then second thing is the fact that uh, when you spend that kind of money and all of a sudden every scratch and dent bothers you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, and why does it bother you? Not it's not because oh it's my baby you know it bothers you because you overspent you know you overspent your ego's attached to it and every ding makes it look worse than when you bought it so now that yeah, yeah. that hundred thousand dollars you spent look it becomes a moot point because you got a dent in it yep yeah. right yeah. so and and again it's hurting your ego not your not your uh, your your material I, so I, 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 I just
1: I had a business partner who who told me he needed two hundred grand just to break even. And he was always saying he couldn't afford to invest in the business. But literally every week I saw him and he had a new motorbike or a new car or a robot sprinkler system. And I mean, he's a nice guy, but Jesus money would just drip through his fingers into um, depreciating assets, um, which drives me up the wall.
0: Yeah, it's because it's uh, he doesn't. um, What happens is it's not that he doesn't have money to invest. He's uh, not, um, he doesn't uh, value what he, you know, investing in it because it's still producing income. Yeah. If that, that, if that system stopped producing income and you told me I had to input money to get it to start up again, (laughs) he would have no problem doing it. He would find the money.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Funny world we live in.
0: Absolutely. Joe, it's been phenomenal. I want to say thank you for being on the show.
1: Really kind of you. Um, Really interesting questions and um,
0: keep, keep doing the good work. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below. Thanks for tuning in to The John Papaloni Show.